I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I went out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Paine's. I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains. I offered her my hand. She took me by the arm. I knew that very instant she meant to do me harm. Depart from me this moment, I told her with my voice. Said she, but I don't wish to. Said I, but you have no choice. I beg you, sir, she pleaded from the corners of her mouth. I will secretly accept you and together we'll fly south. Just then, Tom Paine himself came running from across the field, shouting at this lovely girl and commanding her to yield. And as she was letting go her grip, up Tom Paine did run. I'm sorry, sir, he said to me. I'm sorry for what she's done. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about As I Went Out One Morning, track two from the 1967 masterpiece, John Wesley Harding, is fellow Bob fan and musician and music educator, Nathaniel Glasser. Hi, Nathaniel. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for and, being here. Now, where are you hailing from? Uh, I'm hailing from Stockholm, Sweden. I just have to say, first of all, thank you so much for what you're doing. I, I, I can uh, relate to what you're doing. And uh, I've been hosting an open mic for over 10 years on and off. And so I can really understand what you're doing. And it's, it's amazing. Keep up the good work. <laughs> well, you're, you're a lot braver <laughs> than I because you're getting in front of an actual audience of people. And we'll get into that later right. on in the show. And I, I can't do that. I'm, I can do this from the safety of my home behind a microphone but, with nobody else around. So, But the dedication is what I really admire because you do this every week. And, and man, you to cover all of Dylan's songs just... That's that's a, a feat in itself. I hope you're proud of yourself. Uh, well, <laughs> some some weeks I am. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So anyway, again, Nathaniel, thank you so much for coming on. And etc. I can't wait to talk about the song because this, this is a pretty interesting little little ditty Bob wrote here for John Wesley Harding, as of pretty much all the songs on, on that record. But but of course, you know, you're new to the show. So I, I need to ask you, like, what's your secret origin with becoming a fan of Bob? I mean, uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, uh, my parents were of the beatnik generation. They weren't exactly beatniks, but they, you know, they listened to folk music. They listened to um, uh, Ravi Shankar and classical music, and in uh, Bob Dylan and, and uh, John Baez, P.C. Or you know, it was like he was just a part of that whole. Um, uh, I guess the classical music was was kind of <laughs> side there, but uh, you know, like uh, that—that's what I grew up listening to, and uh, especially I have strong memories of um, early memories of hearing Dylan in the car on the way to New York to visit my relatives because my parents are from New York City, and uh, you know, hearing Dylan in the backseat of the car. Um, and now I was too young to understand the lyrics, and obviously, as you get older, you realize that. You know, you'll never understand some of the lyrics, but you, uh, I, and you know that blaring harmonica sometimes, uh, which the, especially in the early uh, records was really um, could be kind of overwhelming sometimes. You know, you'd have to turn the volume up and down in the car to 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 make it uh, right. But um, yeah, so I mean, I just grew up on Dylan, and I guess 
what really when I really got into it on my own, you know, in a way, it was I guess um, in, in college I went to UMass Amherst, studied music, music education there, and um, you know, I mean, it's like perfect. To, college age is the perfect age to get into Dylan, mm-hmm. uh, and I also remember in, in the music department uh, being outside in the in, in the uh, parking lot, and there was a there's this uh, a girl that was uh, one of my peers and um she had her car parked out there and she was smoking a cigarette and i heard like you know some early dylan this is like in 98 well maybe around 2000 99 something like that and i heard early dylan but i had never heard it before and that's the first bootleg i ever heard was in the parking lot there i was like oh my god you know i had no idea that there was this whole bootleg thing going on so (laughs) that, that was pretty cool and then uh, I saw Dylan uh, play uh, Spring Weekend at UMass. I think that was the first time I saw Natalie Merchant open for him. Ooh, that's you know, a good combination. Spring, yeah, that that was a really good combination, actually. Um, and, I mean, Spring Weekend is a, such an eclectic uh, thing. You know, KRS-One in Cypress Hill. Were, were on, like, I don't know if that was the same. I think that was actually the same night. Um, or maybe it was the next night. I don't know. But then, uh, And then in Stockholm, when I moved to Stockholm, uh, I married a Swede. We met in Spain doing a study abroad that I did through UMass. Um, and then I ended up moving here teaching music. And I've seen Dylan here five times. He comes to Sweden pretty much every other year. That's fantastic. Isn't that, isn't that great? I mean, imagine there are some acts that if you don't live in the United States, you probably never get to see very much. But Dylan, you know, he, he covers the globe, literally. He does. And he's he actually kind of has like, I don't know, Swedes really love they love Dylan and they love Bruce Springsteen. Those are like two <laughs> <laughs> those are two really big acts here. And you know, Metallica. I mean, it's a it's a very uh I don't know. There's a there's a but anyway, it's a it's great. I mean, and I um he's coming back this summer. I haven't gotten tickets because he's playing at this arena that I've seen him twice at and it's never very good. Maybe now he would know how to play that room with the more Sinatra stuff because I've seen him at smaller venues three mm-hmm. times in Stockholm, and that was amazing. All, all three of those smaller venues were great concerts. And so I don't really want to, like, spoil that. But what they do sometimes is they add an extra concert, you know, like the day after. They'll announce it, like, two days before at a smaller place. So I'm kind of hoping for that. Because I, I I went to one of those like uh, surprise concerts once, and I was like twenty feet from the stage, and wow, yeah, that was great. That's fantastic. So, that's a yeah. that's amazing. Do you have a particular kind of favorite era in particular? I don't know why I ask people that because I don't know if I have one, but I'm always sort of curious what other people's answer is. Well, I mean, I can I can appreciate appreciate pretty much all the eras. I mean, I grew up listening to mostly the early stuff because of my parents. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I would get, I, would, I guess I'd have to say 60s, 70s, but I, I can really dig like the, like the 80s live stuff um, where he's really indulgent in his, in his whole Bob <laughs> voice and the singing stuff in like, you know, just two notes, like different octaves. And, uh, and then of course the new stuff i mean what really blew me away about hearing him live a couple the last time i saw him in particular with with the sinatra stuff was like once again he surprises us by being like cuz i pretty much thought the whole modern times and like all the stuff he's been doing in the 2000s was kind of a result 
it, like the the quality of his voice I thought was a result of like basically his voice deteriorating in a way and like him making the most of his voice you know and doing it in a very cool way right finding I, the right material for the voice that he has now exactly and then he shows us like fooled you <laughs> he's like <laughs> he's like I, I still can do whatever I want it's just like Oh my God! It, it was it was so amazing, like uh, to hear him pull out that smooth voice. And maybe I was, you know, I've always seen Dylan as kind of like a multitasker, like in a way that he's like, um, kind of the way that, like the Beatles like would practice. You know, in the early days, they were practicing on stage, basically, like in Hamburg, right. they would play for eight hours. I mean, that was their gig, but they were consciously getting great, on, like while getting paid for it. And Dylan, I've always seen like. Um, he's, I can identify with him as a music educator and musician because I think he, he's always like a student or a teacher, like with the, with the band, I think that whole era was like, he was learning, um, with together with them in like with the grateful dead when, when he was practicing with them famously, he would like switch songs. They never played through one song, like all the right, way. Right. And he was teaching them. One of them said that like, they realized that he was teaching them like a repertoire, that they were going to, uh, I, I think that's, if I'm not confusing my story, um, that, uh, so he was like, and then in this new phase with the Sinatra stuff, it's almost like he got into that whole American songbook, uh, especially these standards, kind of jazzy standards as a way of like going into the next phase. And maybe he developed that voice as an, you know, um, but it's a very healthy voice to use as a, as a singer. I mean, that, that's a, but it's amazing that he can go back and forth between that smooth voice and then the really raspy, like almost Tom Waits. <laughs> I am. Uh, I mean, I, you know, who knows? But I, I it, it certainly fits a pattern that he has gone through where he has done a bunch of covers records. And then when he's done with the covers records, he sort of unveils a new version of himself. And so if that's what's happening again, I'm. I'm giddy with excitement as to what that might be, you know, at, at 78 years old, how he's going to reinvent himself. And we never know, you know, you never do know with him, but it, it seems to fit the, I mean, the Sinatra stuff does seem to be at an end. Uh, he's not doing them really much live anymore. And the re those records seem to be now definitively in the past. I mean, I don't know how you follow up uh, a triple record set with more, you know, <laughs> that kind of triple kit does kind of feel like the end statement. So it'll be interesting to see uh, when he's done this sort of, round of touring uh what he chooses to unveil there have been rumors that he has gone in the studio already with yeah. uh, a producer and stuff like that but you know you never hear that you never know this stuff until bang all of a sudden sony music decides to release it now the other thing i needed to ask you about is because you're you're over there in sweden now, you just happen to be in the same neck of the woods as someone who has a really strong connection to their early bob dylan career right yeah i mean uh I can't. I, I know I sent you like a lot of uh, links and stuff. And then at the end, I was like, "Wait a minute! Did I mention that I know Izzy Young? Like uh, <laughs> uh, Izzy Young, obviously, you know, he was like at the epicenter of the whole uh, Greenwich Village uh, folk revival scene. Um, he had his famous uh, folklore center that he opened in the late '50s. Um, had it open in, until the uh, mid '60s in in New York, and that's where. Dylan, you know, when he first came to New York, he he met uh, Pete Seeger, Dave Van Ronk, uh, everyone, everyone went there. And then it was like a, it was a, it was a record shop. He sold instruments and it was a music venue. So you could play there. And he put on Dylan's first uh, New York City concert, Joni Mitchell, Tim Buckley, like 
and thousands of folk musicians played at the Folklore Center. He he arranged Dylan's uh, first um, show was actually at the Carnegie Hall, I think. It's amazing. Dylan even wrote a song about him called Talking Folklore Center. I've never heard that, but it, it does exist, apparently. I heard Izzy... Okay, so it, uh, <laughs> Izzy moved to the... the uh, to Sweden in the 70s. So I guess he must have had the Folklore Center open until, I guess, maybe the early 70s. I, I'm not quite sure when he closed it in New York, but he reopened it in Stockholm in the 70s, and it's been open up until this past November. It just closed. Wow. I, I've, I played there twice. I played there once in 2009, and I played there, I think I played the second to last show at the Folklore Center, which was in June last year. Unfortunately, he wasn't there. He was. He's. He hasn't been well. Um, he lives in a home just two blocks away from the Folklore Center. But uh, he, up until November, he was like, last time I saw him was in the, the spring. I was on a paternity leave. I was at home with my daughter. You know, Sweden has a great social system. And uh, so I went there with my daughter, you know, just to hang out and have coffee. And uh, and he was on his way from the home with his lunchbox in his hand. And <laughs> sense of humor intact, 90 years old. Um, you know, we had coffee and, and, and chit chatted and, uh, yeah, he just, he's a, he, uh, it's amazing. It's like really like a miracle kind of in the same way that Dylan has like had this amazing and long successful career. Izzy always like, uh, had the folklore center open. That's what he wanted to do. And he's had it open for like, I don't know, 60 years or something. And, uh, and now, you know, so that, that was really, um, He's living uh, history, and uh, there's been like many documentaries made about him. There's scenes of him in uh, No Direction Home um, with you know the Martin Scorsese, and uh, yeah, I can't remember. Well, there's a lot to be said about you. Like we said before, you could do a whole program on. Yeah, there's really a whole show could be talked about that. I mean, I. How did you get to know him? It's so funny. The first. I don't know, the first or second day of work at the school where I was working. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it was like the first week. Anyways, really early on. A, a colleague of mine, I was working at a school that teaches in English, the English school. And uh, one of my colleagues, Luis Costas, a great Puerto Rican anthropologist, um, you know, we just started talking about Dylan pretty quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, you know, you really need to go meet a guy called Izzy Young. And then he just gave me the dress and I, I went there. Izzy's shop was open like seven days a week, except for the summertime, because then he would he would close it and, and go. You know, what he did was um, he was an expert on the folk music and jazz. I mean, he, he used to write, he had a, a radio program in New York and hosted Muddy Waters and, you know, blues uh, people and Lead Belly. I mean, he knew everybody. Um, and so I went up there and, and uh, met Izzy. And if you've read, obviously you've read Chronicles. I mean, everyone sure. listening, probably the, the description of Izzy in the first chapter there, there's like four pages about the Folklore Center. And, um, oh, that's what I was going to tell you, that I actually got to hear Izzy perform the Talking Folklore Center Blues when he turned 80. <laughs> wow. <laughs> With two guys backing him up, two guys from New Jersey. You're in New Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a two brothers from there called Noah and Shep Guest, and they had uh, a duo called the Aristocrats. <laughs> they moved to Sweden because they heard about Izzy. They were they were like living wow. 
basement of the Folklore Center, like the first week that they got here. And now they, well, Noah lives here. Uh, he's also a music teacher, musician. Um, and they backed up Izzy that did the Talking Folklore Center Blues. And Izzy's always been writing poetry. Um, so, but I didn't realize he had such a good sense of rhythm too, which was cool because he, he totally did, he did it in the talking blues style and like rhythmically and everything. It was, it was great. Um, and, uh, another, my last memory I want to share about Izzy is that, um, one day I went there and as I was going to leave, he said, Hey, do you mind just, uh, <laughs> he talked like, he said, Hey, do you mind just, uh, taking this letter to the post office before you, before you go. And I, I said, of course, no problem. And I, he's like, it's for my best friend, Pete Seeger. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took the letter from Izzy Young, walked down to the post office, PC, you know, addressed to Pete Seeger and put it in. That, that was the, that was a neat feeling. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really some point uh, we'll have to have you back and just, we'll just talk about that because it's, that's just yeah. an amazing, you know, piece of Dylan history. And of course, you know, I'm sort of fascinated about does Dylan still see him when he, when he's in that neck of the, we'll get into that in a whole other show. Sometime. Yeah. We're, we're, we're... The is not really. He saw him once 15 years ago. Um, but uh, no, D- D- Dylan is, is uh, yeah, Dylan is Dylan. Okay. <laughs> but he, 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 yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that another time. We'll talk about that another time. So, okay. Well, that, that's all fantastic stuff. Uh, this is really fascinating to me. I'm, I'm, I, I have to uh, sort of admit that I admire somebody that is sort of from the United States and then ends up in another part of the world. I mean, I, I sort of dream of that sometimes and it's probably virtually never going to happen but so when someone is born around here and then finds themselves in sweden that's sort of like a remarkable journey so this is all really really cool and again we're going to talk about your music later on in the show but let's talk about the song which is by, by I, the way talk, talking to you it makes me miss the u.s because oh, thank you i, I appreciate there's, that there's pros and cons to, to to all of it but yeah thank you Totally worth it for the uh, for the better social programs, trust me. So uh, anyway, so we're here to talk about as I went out one morning, and and before I ask you about why you wanted to pick this one, because you're the you're the only person that's ever mentioned this song. So when when I get lists from of songs from people, a lot of times there's some overlap, you know, as you might expect, and then when someone mentions a song that no one else has ever mentioned, I tend to kind of give them that one immediately because it's like, oh, that's a that's a unique one, and you're the first person ever to bring this one up, and. This is a song that I will admit, like, for the longest time, I did not understand what it was supposed to be about. You know, I just didn't understand. I was like, okay, I, I understand. I, you know, I hear it. I understand literally what's going on in the lyrics. But in terms of the themes, I have no idea what Bob's talking about. And I've done some reading up on it. I mean, I've certainly gone to, like, BobDylan.org, uh, uh, Tony Atwood's great site where he talks about the songs. And he mentioned some theories. And all of them make sense. But I've just never been able to sort of like feel it in my bones the way I do some other songs. But nevertheless, uh, what I find to be true a lot about uh, with a lot of the songs on John Wesley Harding is that 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 sense of like foreboding, that sense of menace that that seems to be happening. And it's sort of interesting is that where this song is placed because it's track two on on the record and the first song is john wesley harding which if you want to you could take that very straightforward it's just this kind of nice little country ballad about a about a you know a a, a gambler kind of a, a an, an outlaw but a nice guy uh who you know looked out for people and stuff and you think oh okay this is this is very different from anything we had heard from dylan before and then the album takes a much darker turn with this song and so with it's with this song that you start 
sensing, oh, okay, there's a, we're going down a whole other road here. But uh, I want to ask you, like, why did you want to talk about this one? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, like, uh, I'm listening to music basically from just a, uh, a musical <laughs> point of view. I mean, like, I, I hear the... the um, God, this is gonna sound uh, stupid. <laughs> I hear the music. <laughs> no, but it's like I I I always uh, am drawn to the music first, you know, and just the sound of the the song. I I have to say this is not necessarily my favorite Dylan song, but it's one of my absolute favorite Dylan recordings. Um, like just the sound of the the song, the drums, the 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 bass, the melody, the harmony, everything, and then the lyrics. It paints a very vivid picture um but for me even the lyrics is like part of the sound of the song you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. so i i never dwelled actually that much on what it means besides the the vivid picture in my head when it comes up until actually you you um that we talked about doing this and then you know since then i've i think i've i had googled a few times to see what other people thought and you know i was curious about who tom Paine was um you know, and as as a lot of people know, he was one of the founding fathers of the uh, of the U.S. He was a pamphleteer that, uh, um, you know, got the. Um, he wrote Common Sense. Yeah, and and didn't he um, talk about the importance of uh, um, whether it was the right to, right to vote or? Um, well, yeah, I mean, well, he was definitely a you know a big one of the most outspoken proponents of essential freedom like the most freedom uh that that you can when you're a founding father you're talking about pulling off the the shackles of british rule and so he was one of the most outspoken people and so that's i feel like that's um like i understand what you're saying about like you don't necessarily get bogged down in what the literal meaning is and again like a lot of dylan songs you're kind of in this weird world where you're not really sure where you are because this seems to be like, okay, is is this really what's happening? And then all of a sudden you're meeting Tom Paine. Okay, well, that's a historical figure. So is is Dylan the singer meeting Tom Paine? Probably not. So yeah. it's like it is kind of hard to get a handle on what it is. But I agree with the, the way the music matches the lyrics because, of course, this song is just – it's only three verses – and yeah. the lines are so short. And when you compare it to what he was doing just on the previous record with Visions of Johanna and Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, these incredibly complex, you know, epic songs. And then here he's cutting it way, way down to where all these songs are like two and a half minutes long. Exactly. In fact, that's one thing. The first time I listened to the album, it was it was in the wintertime in, in Connecticut. And I grew up in a kind of old farmhouse. And my brother, who's four years older than me, he uh recommended that we listen to it and the first time i listened to the album i have to admit like especially because the the first song john wesley harding which is, is kind of goofy sounding you know it's mm-hmm. like john wesley harding you know it's like and but it's very subtle actually because the second time i listened to it this especially when as i went out when morning came on it was totally spellbinding and and you know i think I've heard a lot of the first tracks of Dylan songs. Like there's several examples, like rainy day women. There's uh, all the wild horses on uh, self portrait. There's a lot of odd songs. And someone asked him why he puts these odd songs in the beginning. And he says, well, they don't really fit anywhere else. And (laughs) he kind of put them in the beginning to kind of get them out of the way. (laughs) It's actually really, I, I've been thinking about this from a musical perspective. First of all, I, 
I forgot to say that for me, as I went out one morning is like a quintessential folk song, folk ballad. And, and I think in, on one hand, I think maybe he was inspired by Tom Payne. It apparently pretty uh, recently before he, he wrote the song, he was invited uh, by the Tom Payne society. They gave him an award and he, this was just like weeks after um, Kennedy was assassinated. Right. And, yeah. 1963. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, got booed off the stage. He was drunk. He he said really offensive things to, about the left, and you know just was outrageous. And and um, and so you know I, I think my theory is kind of like and um, it's obviously impossible to say, but I think maybe he was inspired. You know, thinking about Tom Paine. Obviously, Tom Paine was on his mind. He had to apologize about this incident, or you know he he decided to apologize, um, and then. You know, breathing the air around Tom Paine, maybe he's talking about the, you know, getting uh, um, freedom or whatever. But either way, I think that this is kind of an exercise in like writing a, a true folk ballad, and it's very concise. Um, there's a poem writ, uh, written by um, I have his uh, Auden, right? W H Auden, yeah. Well, the as I, I think it's called as I went out one morning. It's, a, it's actually as I walked out one evening. So, right. yeah, Dylan just <laughs> takes that one word and turns it into something else. And then there was two songs, uh, Ewan McCall, um, I think he was Welsh or Irish, I can't remember. Um, he, he sang um, As I Went Out One May Morning, and then there was Burl Ives, who wrote, uh, or at least sang uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain. And, and he also had a song called As I Went Out One Morning. And so I think, and for me, that first line is kind of like, it's almost like the way a, a blues can start with like, uh, woke up this morning or whatever. It's kind of mm-hmm, like one of these mm-hmm. catchphrases. And then the next song I dreamed, I saw St. Augustine is also like, like, uh, I, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. So it's almost like an opener. That's just a standard folk thing. But for me, it's, it's a quintessential folk song for a number of reasons. And it's a quintessential folk rock song because of the, the way he really, it's a true melding of with the rock bass and drums and the whole album with the folk song and then the whole album like you said is mostly just three stanzas it's incredibly concise and it's very raw like the whole thing is and it's reflecting in in the sound of his voice it's reflecting like probably the time in his life where he was at uh, after the motorcycle accident you know and and he's recuperating with his family up in uh, woodstock new york and woodstock Okay, upstate New York is not technically New England, is it? Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know if it's. I don't think it's technically considered New England. No, no, but it's very similar. I mean, my cousin. I, I have two cousins in uh, upstate New York, Poughkeepsie and, and Kingston, and, and it's very similar to Connecticut. Actually, I mean, like that. So, like for listening to this song or the whole album in in in, in I've always felt a uh, you know strong like a memory about that and. I just uh, I actually have the guitar here because I, I just wanted to show a quick thing about um, like how this is a, a, a true folk song. Is that okay? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I love that. So I actually, um, I always want to learn this harmonica part. And it's really funny how like I, I looked at three different places, including uh, a book, a website, and another book in, uh, to find out which key the harmonica went in. And I got three different answers. <laughs> so it's like, and he did a really interesting because this at uh, the beginning. Boy, this is not a very good uh, harmonica. And then at the end, he goes. 
something like that. And uh, so coming off of the major key, you know, John Wesley Harding, the first two chords are also major. And it could just as easily go, the song could easily go. And you have a song in that key, or you could go. So something like that. But, you know, he goes, and suddenly, like you said, you're in this like minor key, you know, dark, there's something mis mysterious going on. And the bass, you know, with that amazing bass. Oh, the, band, the band with him in this is unreal how good they are. It's amazing. Like, and I could listen to this like over and over and over. Like, I never get tired. And then, um, it's really, it's, uh, I noticed the people saying that uh, with his harmonica, he's using like uh, the Phrygian scale, which is like a really odd, uh, you know, it's like an ancient Greek uh, scale, um, or at least medieval, because apparently Dorian and Phrygian, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, like, <laughs> you know, he's uh, going like this. Uh, um, that's the harmonica. And that's like it's very like uh, eerie sounding, and he's combining that with the um, the thing that makes it a very folk song is that uh, it's modal with, instead of like a harmonic. For, like if it was harmonic, it would go like. As I went out one morning to be the air around town, something. But it's not. It's as I went out one morning, kind of like Scarborough Fair, you know. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? And he spent time in England with, in the folk uh, scene there. Right, with right. People like uh, Martin Carthy, who I think is interviewed in No Direction Home. He was actually the one that gave the arrangement of Scarborough Fair to Simon and Garfunkel. But, um, and there was this whole folk revival in, in, uh, in England. And around the time of John Wesley Harding, they started to do this real folk rock thing, like with the Fairport Convention and uh, Richard Thompson, uh, the lead guitarist of that band, who incidentally, do you know do you know who that is, Richard Thompson? Oh, absolutely. Shoot yeah. out the lights and all that. <laughs> and his one of his songs, 1952 Black Vincent uh, Motorcycle, I think that's what it's called, is for me like one of the other quintessential modern folk songs. And Dylan has actually played that song live in one of his concerts. Has he really? Oh, I didn't. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's a. And there's even a video of them playing together on the stage at some guitar expo. And they like, they like, it's the two of them on the stage, and they have like their backs to each other. <laughs> and they're like kind of on different sides of the stage. But it, I mean, they're they're mutual admirers. I think they're even neighbors in uh, Malibu. Um, but, uh, so anyway, getting back to the other thing that really gets me about this song is like, um, every line, uh, like, uh, creates a question mark in my mind. Yes, like, yes. I just want to know like what, as soon as, you know, as I went out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Payne, it's like, who is Tom Payne? <laughs> and it was like, I spied the fairest damsel. And you get this image that ever walked in chains, and you're like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, what the it, hell? Like, <laughs> and, and every line, like, and and uh, I have this book uh, about the the albums, and 
um, Allen Ginsberg has a nice quote here. He said, um, Dylan was writing shorter lines with every line meaning something. He wasn't just making up a line to go with a rhyme anymore. Each line had to advance the story, bring the song forward. All the imagery was to be functional rather than ornamental. And that's exactly how I, you know, that he, he said it perfectly there that like, it's just, uh, it's so concise. The only line that maybe is not as convincing as the rest is like, uh, you know, he, the last stanza, he's like, just then Tom Payne himself came running from across the field, chatting this lovely girl, commanding her to yield. And as she was letting go her grip up, Tom Payne did run. It's like, he's still running, (laughs) 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 but I don't know. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it, like I said, I can't get over like um, how, how how cool it is, how it, it really um, it's like a page turner. If if you were reading a book, I mean, a very short page turner. These would have to be right, short. Uh, yeah, the short story, really. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I again, when I when I when I scan the lyrics and I look at some of the other meanings and other people's interpretations, and I can sort of see it of. You know, you're going to Tom Paine's to sort of maybe breathe the air of freedom or to express to, to to pick up something to pick up something that you need that you want to be involved with and then you have this temptation in the form of this girl this fairest maiden this fairest damsel uh and then you know then all of a sudden you know okay it sounds okay and then you know you reach out your hand to her and she took me by the arm and I knew that very instant she meant to do me harm. Then all of a sudden, you know, God, we're seven lines into this song, and now it's already taken this dark turn. That yeah. he has offered himself to this damsel, which seems like something you you're 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 offering it up of your own volition. And then the minute you do it, you know you've made a mistake. And then later in the second, I was going to say later on in the song, God, the thing's only three minutes. How later can you get? <laughs> but in the second verse, when he taught, when she says, uh, "I will secretly accept you, and together we'll fly south." Well, well, flying south is slang for death, is going off to die. And so you're like, well, Laura, what's that about? You know, I've seen some people say this is about the temptation of doing drugs, but I don't know. I feel like virtually everybody wants to ascribe every Dylan song to being, being about drugs. You know, Mr. Tambourine Man, it's about drugs. You know, everything's about drugs. Um, so I don't know if I buy that. And I, thematically, I don't even know where that would fit within John Wesley Harding, really, to have a song about that. But nevertheless, it's this temptation that you are interested in has all of a sudden kind of gotten its grips on you and you don't know how to fight it off. And so that ominous tone to me, that's what sticks with me more than any literal interpretation. Yeah. There's definitely a sense that I I get in my mind, like I get this feeling of like, um, it's almost like he's walking around like a, a, um, a mental institution or something like an outdoor, you know, like he doesn't realize where he is and he sees this beautiful woman. He doesn't realize like, I don't know how disturbed she is or something like, uh, I, I don't know. That's just like a, a kind of a fantasy that, that comes up in my mind. Um, or, you know, because we don't know actually the relationship with Tom Payne is that you talk about the triad sometimes. Is that like, uh, his, um, wife that's gone insane. That's like one, idea that i've had Mm. it could be his her father i mean we don't know um and and then um by the way it's interesting i've always thought that he says i will secretly accept you because it's like depart from me this moment i told her with my voice said she but i don't wish to said i but you have no choice i beg you sir she pleaded from the corners of her mouth and then it would in my ears it's his turn to talk 
Oh, interesting. He, I never thought of says, that. Okay. I will secretly – he changes his mind and says, I will secretly accept you. He's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you away from this place. And as soon – and then, you know, just then, he, uh, when he's going to save her, Tom Payne comes up and, and is uh, – yeah. so it's really ambiguous. But that, that's also what's so amazing about the Dylan songs and I think why he's uh, infinitely, like, fascinating is that just like with his playing style, which is so – spontaneous and improvisatory even though he's within like uh, usually improvisations for jazz musicians he's taking that to the folk and folk rock genre and prides himself on never playing a song twice the same way i mean he's even said that um and at all of us who have listened to live recordings or gone to concerts know that <laughs> um, and then um even in the lyrics he he retains this spontaneity because it's ambiguous you know, it, it never gets old because you never know. Right? Yeah. You know, that's, that's funny. Kind of... I've been listening to the song for t- decades and I've never considered that, that it's the guy, that it's the singer speaking those lines. Mm-hmm. But now that I look at it, that, that could, could completely be it. That's really interesting. Wow. That's funny. Cause in the book, in this, uh, all the songs or all the, yeah, I think it's called all the songs, big fat orange book. Um, they also say that it's her saying that, but there's nothing okay. that says that. So no, right? You know, it could be either. Absolutely, could be either one. There's no no yeah. doubt about that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a weird song in the canon in that uh, apparently there were alternate takes shot of uh, done of this. Uh, John Wesley Harding is the album that's probably in in the entire Dylan canon was produced with the the least fuss. It was done in three days with virtually no, uh, very few outtakes. There were no uh, cut songs. I mean, the, he went in with these songs and he recorded these songs and that's what ended up on the album. But apparently there are some alt versions of As, of, as, of, as I Went Out One Morning. I don't know if they're completed or not or they were sort of false starts or whatever, although I tend to think false starts don't even get kept or recorded. So maybe so. And it's it's weird because like there's probably so little extra material for John Wesley Harding, that there's no way to make like a bootleg series out of it. No, there's not. There's not enough. But nevertheless, fact, I'd be dying to hear this. I know. In fact, uh, one of the frustrating, or not frustrating, maybe slightly frustrating <laughs> things about this is like <laughs> it's one of my favorite, maybe my favorite album of his. And there's no footage. There's no pictures from the. I would just like. I would love to see a picture from the recording session. Yeah, I love. The cover album, the, the album cover, which I have, uh, I have the LP hanging on my wall, um, and it's um, it's it's great. I mean, it's these two um, guys from uh, Bangladesh. It, incidentally, one of my other colleagues from the English school, um, Catherine Nordgren, wonderful woman. She um, lent me instruments once. For, she used to be married to a guy from Bangladesh, from uh, a tribe uh, or ethnic group called uh, Baul the bowel uh, tr- uh, people and they have very special instruments that are like, I don't know. I, I think almost like ecstatic Sufi like uh, uh, stuff. And um, so, and she lent me these instruments one time and then uh, she told me this funny story that one time um, they said to her, do you know, do you know Bob? <laughs> and she's who? And she said, they said Bob. And then they showed her the cover of John Wesley. And it was these two guys from uh, Bangladesh 
that just happened to be, I don't know, they were going through Woodstock and, and maybe having a concert or something. And and they got introduced to Dylan and they were just hanging out. And then the, the guy in, in the back there is just the uh, woodcutter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories. Like, just this random dude is immortalized for all time, being on a Bob Dylan album cover. Like, he probably had no idea who this guy even was, and like, he's on the he is now on on the album cover, making one of the hippest things ever to happen. That's I love that. And it's really funny too, because a lot of people, including myself, assumed that they were Native Americans, mm-hmm. but they they actually, you know, there's some there's some similarities there, and. Uh, um, yeah, so it's so funny, and it, apparently it was like really, really cold. I like minus twenty years, or no, oh, I, don't, I don't, minus ten or something, and um, and they had to go in and out, you know, and that was in the behind um, Albert Grossman's uh, house, uh, actually, oh, right, so up in Woodstock, right? Okay, yeah. and he wanted the Dylan wanted to be able to see the uh, photos immediately, so they they took them with Polaroids. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, people have been trying to untangle, you know, what the cover means, and I don't necessarily know if it necessarily means much of anything. Really, it could just be that, you know, that's just sort of the nice kind of folksy and and welcoming image, and it's certainly a representative of of three very different kinds of people. You know, you've got this Bob Dylan guy, and then you've got the woodcutter, and then you've got the Bengal balls guy, Bengal Bows there guy. You know, so it's just a kind of it's a welcoming image, even if it is a bit uns- inscrutable. You know, you're just sort of like, all right, I mean, okay, whatever, whatever this means. That down home, I think it's just like very down home, like uh, the sound and the uh, the the feeling in the air, and you know, he just and it, it's ironic too because this was nine, what 1968 or 69, like. Uh, when this came out in uh, when the rest of the world is like raging with like the student protest is like Dylan, he feels like he he's been there and done that, you know, and now he's doing the next, I mean, probably also as just a sense of survival to like recuperate up there after in the, um, after the motorcycle accident and, and the, just the pressure of, of being such a superstar. And, um, but uh, yeah, I just want to say a quick thing about John Wesley Harding, which is just that it's the whole album, I think, is is pretty subtle. I mean, a lot of Dylan's stuff is very subtle. Um, but this is, in a sense, it's more subtle maybe than, than some stuff that he had even done before. Because, like, even if you take the first track, uh, John Wesley Harding, I mean, he sounds like a nice guy, but there's also some implied violence i mean he he traveled with a, a gun in every gun hand. in every hand yeah you know I, I always thought how many hands does he have <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then uh, then he says um uh he was never known to hurt an honest man so how many dishonest people did he kill you know what i mean like right 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 uh, so and and then uh yeah i mean just uh just love the the whole album. Um, I I also like it in the in the lyrics here, um, at least the way that it was shown on the, um, yeah, even here. And I'm looking at the lyrics book and on the website. Uh, I offered her my hand. The way it's spelled is like offer apostrophe d, mm-hmm. like the very old style. So he he's in damsel. I mean, these are like, you know, he's invoking a lot of very old um, uh, language. 
Yeah, I mean, you could see that this could exist in the same world, maybe as Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts, you know, where it's everybody's got horse-drawn carriages. You know, this is not a modern world where this story is taking place. Um, this this song is, again, unique in that in terms of live performances, it has been performed live once. Once. <laughs> yeah. Once in the 50-odd yeah. years since it was created. It was performed on January 10th, 1974 as part of the tour he did with the band, the sort of quote-unquote comeback tour. You can actually hear it. It's on YouTube. Uh, you wow. can hear the performance on there, and I actually do like it. it, it I think it works pretty well in, in a live arrangement. I don't think it's, I, I think it's more compelling in the original version, but it's a, it's a decent stab at it, and it is sort of fascinating that Dylan would make the effort to work up a band version of the song and then play it one time and then just discard it and essentially permanently discard it because it's never been performed live yeah. again. That's just unbelievable. I regret not having listened to that before this because I I, I was, um, you know, thinking about that. I, I saw that he only played that once and, and I was, I was kind of thinking about why, why that is. I mean, I think in one way, you know, he must have felt something when they did it live. Like, ah, you know, I i mean, he has so many songs to choose from. It's like, uh, it's okay, you know, <laughs> like, uh, um, to not do this one. But it's such a cool recording. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe he felt like he couldn't do it better than the recording or something. Like, because for me, it's just... Uh, and when it comes to an example of this whole debate about, you know, there's the the camps of can Dylan sing or not. I mean, it's a stupid debate, I think, yes. um, but it's, I, I would have to take this in either version of a uh, girl from the North country. If I was going to like try to make someone uh, uh, confess that he can sing because it's, I mean, uh, this is one of the first times he sings with vibrato um, actually in, a, in his, I mean, if you listen to um uh, the longer notes, you can hear this beautiful like uh, vibrato in his voice, and um, and I just think uh, the girl from the North Country, the, the both performances are are so beautifully sung, and but for me, I've, and people like yourself, I'm sure like uh, uh, singing is not about uh, uh, cor you know tonal correctness; it's right. about the, uh, what's it called um, conveying. Uh, a feeling and yeah. i felt like dylan is like a, a virtuoso uh singer in terms of that he can convey uh the the lyrics through the voice in a sung voice i mean that it's a uh, it, it amazes me something and there's a lot of built-in uh what's called word painting you know when he um uh in the music and also just the way he sings some of the song uh, words like at the end he says I'm sorry, sir. He said to me, I'm sorry for what she's done. I mean, it, it sounds like someone just saying, I'm sorry, like really vehemently, you know, or uh, w with a lot of uh, feeling. And, and he builds it into the um, the melody. So it's actually a tone. I mean, it's not just a, a spoken thing. So he, he does that all the time. I mean, it, that, that's one of the amazing things about uh, the way he sings is the, the word painting and uh, yeah, just the delivery. 
Yeah, I mean, he's able to say it. He's able to convey, at least to my ears, he's able to convey an, an amazing amount of emotion, uh, no, no matter what the emotion is, with very simple words or sometimes very complicated words. And he's able to do that. And that's it works here. Like I said, this song, as I said, this song has never had I've never made a, a full on emotional, uh, I mean, intellectual connection to it. But I know how I feel about when I hear it. It just has that sense of menace and darkness, as a lot of the other songs do. Um, I actually think John Wesley Harding opens and closes with the more upbeat stuff. Uh, And then in the middle, it's that dark Dear Landlord and all along the Watchtower. It's all this, you know, the Drifters Escape and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of dark Americana parables going on. And, of course, you know, for people that were just buying this album off the racks in 1967, they must have been pretty flummoxed because how different could it how different was it from blonde on blonde and they didn't have the benefit of the basement tapes yet because nobody knew they existed and Mm. when you when you hear that you go well you know that they're clearly the connecting link between that you know blonde on blonde and john wesley harding and it's also amazing to think that the recording of john wesley harding came almost it almost overlapped with the end of the basement tapes which is remarkable. I mean, you, you kind of feel like, oh, there must have been some space there. But apparently this inspiration he had for John Wesley Harding was strong and intense and very quick. I mean, like all the songs came to him very quickly. Apparently he wrote, wrote some of the songs on a long train ride and wrote them yeah, all. That's... And then, boom, he just recorded this thing and got it out. And then the one last thing I will mention about this record, which is sort of interesting, is that apparently he gave the songs to... Robbie Robertson and maybe I think Rick Danko or one of the other members of the band and suggested that they add parts to it, add some electric backing. And according to legend, they heard the songs and said, Bob, these are, these are great the way they are. Just leave them alone. And therefore then they stayed, they stayed the way they are. Thank God. I mean, like it, it's, it's so raw. Like even the, the, the drum set, I mean, there's, I think it's just a hi hat, a snare and the bass drum. There's no cymbals. I love him on this. I think he's just an the the drumming on this by Kenny Butcher is just amazing. Yeah, and that bass line that with the slide, he's like slide. It almost sounds like he's playing a fretless bass, but I think it's a I think it's with frets. But um, that also gives it, um, uh, yeah, just a, it's such a folk rock uh, song. I I was also thinking that maybe the part of the reason that he doesn't play this uh, live is because it's kind of like it's kind of locked in somehow to like the, the, um, the way it's written. It's just like, um, I mean, I've heard a lot of cover versions of, I, I tried doing it myself, you know? Um, and I noticed like, um, most people do it in a similar way. I mean, of course there's, you can do a good, uh, cover, uh, of the song and I'm sure Dylan could find a way of, of doing it. But I think, I don't know. He just, like I said, he just has so many other, but there must be a good reason, another good reason that he, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't do it like what the I wonder what the reaction would be if any members of the band were like, Hey Bob, why don't we do as I went out one morning? I wonder if we'd be like, Nah, we're not gonna do that. So well you you mentioned covers and that's a perfect segue because of course you are a musician yourself and you've done a lot of Dylan covers. You sent me a bunch of links that I listened to and there's a lot of interesting stuff. This version you sent me you did of all along the watchtower with this kind of like uh, sort of uh, audio collage elements I thought was really interesting. And I liked, I had to laugh when you attempted your Nashville skyline voice uh, <laughs> doing a Bob. So why don't you tell people about that? Like what's you know, your career as a musician? I mean, uh, I guess music is a hobby. Um, you know, I make 
I have gigs, paid gigs here and there, but uh, um, I, it's mostly hobby. I mean, I, I teach music uh, and I'm, I'm teaching English right now also um, as, as a, my profession. And uh, I love teaching music. But um, uh, like I said, I mean, uh, I, I've uh, done a lot of music on the side. I, I still make music on the side. Um, I have a website. You can, you can uh, check it out. Um, it, under the uh, artist named Deepak, which is spelled uh, D-I-I-P-A-K. Um, I have songs on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, so I, I write my own songs. Um, and then I obviously Dylan's been a huge inspiration. Um, but Dylan is very, I mean, as anybody will tell you, uh, any musician, and I've heard people on this uh, program talking about how difficult it is to um, do a good Dylan cover or just play a Dylan song well, because first of all, uh, the phrasing is difficult. And then he does it so well that it's hard to beat <laughs> you know it's like mm -hmm. it's so unique i mean it's i i kind of liken it to i mean how many people do beastie boys covers i mean like nobody does that because it's nearly impossible impossible to to do a cover that that was that music is so specific to them uh and dylan's music is often very specific to him but on the other hand i mean the melodies and the harmonies are all so solid that it's it's not impossible and i there's tons of great uh in fact uh, when i listen through a lot of covers of uh, as i went out one morning on spotify there's a there's a few there like there's a bluegrass version i liked and there's a, a guy called dr robert who had this really laid back sound i really liked um the one from the film um what's it called i'm not there oh um, sure sure if you look up uh, that song, that's the first thing that comes up. I forget her name that did that. I really like the quality of her voice, but it's a strange cover because they basically just copy, the, like the backing band is just copying the original recording, which is like a crazy idea of a cover. <laughs> I mean, you should do a cover like your own way. I almost think maybe that had something to do with like the producers of the, the film. They wanted to keep some things like the same. But anyway... Um, so yeah, I mean it's uh it's fun to try. I mean uh, you do what you can, and you you and something I've learned from Dylan is like it's just that. I mean, do what you can and do it well. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because like uh, some people take his voice as an example. Okay, he might have um, some quote limitations on his voice in terms of like uh, you know range or whatever, um, but what he can do with his voice is uh, is just incredible, and in the, the the way that he's been able to tap into different voices, and 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 uh, I I heard Dylan uh, in a or I read an interview where he talked about being in um, I think in Cuba or where was it? I know this, but he was at a boxing match, and there was uh, people singing the national anthem. It must have been. Cuba. Uh, so he uh, got it. Now I'm really, really unsure and I feel stupid for not knowing. But anyway, <laughs> heard two people here. Someone sing the American National Anthem in this really like kind of Whitney Houston way or, you know, with the... And, and he talked about the um, uh, performing musical gymnastics <laughs> with their voice, you know. as And then the other uh, team sing, singing their National Anthem, it was like um, and it was a totally different thing. And and so for me, that was like, um, 
obviously if it was Puerto Rico, it would be the same national anthem. That's why I, I got confused there. But uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, do what you can, do it well, and and uh, have fun doing it. You know. Absolutely. I think Bob would sign on to that uh, that maxim. Absolutely. So, well, anyway, Nathaniel, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was really awesome. I mean, we've been trying to I've been trying to catch up with all the guests that want to come on the show. I've been very, very fortunate. So many people want to come on and talk about different songs. So I'm so glad that we finally got a chance to do this. I really appreciate it. It was really, really fun. And uh, and let's stay in touch. Absolutely. I got to hear more stories about uh, Izzy Young at, at the very least. And so there's a bunch of other songs. There's only, you know, 500 other songs to do. So, uh, like I said, we're going to have a link to your music site on the show notes so people can find that. And I definitely recommend that everybody listening should go check that out because I love hearing other interpretations of, of Dylan's songs. And there's a lot of really, really cool stuff there. So, and of course, if you want to find back episodes of this show, you can go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can leave us a review on iTunes. I will some point do a feedback show where I will go through all the iTunes reviews. I really would appreciate it if you would leave one because there aren't that many uh, Bob Dylan podcasts, although we're not the only one now, uh, but, but there are um, – you know, where there aren't that many, and so it'll help get the show noticed if you leave an iTunes review. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on uh, iTunes and on Stitcher, and we're always talking Dylan over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Until the next episode, uh, we will see you later. Bye. As I went out one morning Breathe the air around Tom Payne. I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains. I offered her my hand, she took me by the arm. I knew that very to do me harm